kinfolk, happy Sunday. Let us pray. Holy Creator, we are all your children. Have patience with us and send a word. You are our guide and our, des our destination. Amen. When I realized that I was called to ministry or that I had a kind of inkling that I might become a church pastor someday, I set out into the world to try to find others who had followed that call. This journey led me into the presence of a very strange Jesuit priest uh, named Father John Deere. <laughs> Just like the tractor company, indeed, but it's spelled a little different. Father John Deere, and I'll use some names you may not recognize, but that's okay, it's not super important. He's, uh, I think he's currently in his 50s. He was a protege of the Berrigan brothers. And the Berrigans were two other Jesuit priests who were protesters in the 1960s and 70s against the Vietnam War. And they were targeted by the FBI as part of COINTELPRO, if you know any of that sort of stuff. Uh, they were fierce and defiant, and John Deere was basically their little, uh, their little helper. And uh, he ran around with them as a young man and got into all sorts of trouble. Father John Deere, the priest, has, as of the latest count, been arrested over 80 times. And every time they stick him in jail, he writes a book. Uh, he's written a lot of books, but he is a fierce advocate for peace and disarmament. He's an abolitionist. He believes in the abolition of war. He believes in creating a martial plan for the planet to eliminate poverty and provide education to all of God's children, and he believes that the road to peace is paved with the education, specifically of women and children, the sanctity of all life, and the disarmament of, uh, of all of the machinery of war. When he was a young man, and he didn't have a whole lot of direction, what he used to do is put on his priestly garb, drive his car uh, to the Pentagon. He would stand outside the Pentagon on the sidewalk, and he would preach to the men and women of the uh, three-letter organizations as they went into the Pentagon on their way to work, and he would beseech them, my brothers and sisters in Christ, please put down the weapons of war and embrace the path of peace. And he converted precisely zero of those men and women to his cause. Later on, he and the Berrigan brothers walked on to Los Alamos Air Force Base, where they were fueling up a uh, nuclear bomber jet. I don't know why the guards at Los Alamos didn't stop three priests from walking onto the Air Force Base. I think that was a little bit outside of their typical protocols. But they walked right up to that bomber, and all three of them produced from inside their cassocks hammers. They began to hammer on that nuclear bomber. That got some people's attention. According to John Deere, in less than five seconds, they were surrounded by rifles and screaming U.S. airmen. To which he responded, My brothers in Christ, do not be alarmed. We've only come to destroy this satanic weapon of war. Well, they put them in jail for that too. Finally, the time when he really got under the general's skin, was on an event 
In Annapolis, they were launching a Triton nuclear submarine. This is a submarine that carries 36 nuclear warheads. It can be deployed at a moment's notice. And this was a big, new, shiny nuclear submarine, and so they were dedicating it. Some admiral's wife had come and broken a bottle of champagne on the thing, and they were having a black tie dinner on the deck of this submarine because they were getting ready to set sail. And uh, John rented a canoe, and he paddled out into the water in front of that nuclear submarine and delayed its launch by 24 hours with a canoe. That landed him in jail for 18 months. He wrote a book that was called The Transfiguration about his experience in the Middle East. In that book, he writes about visiting the uh, Temple of the Beatitudes in Israel-Palestine, where Jesus, the mountain upon which Jesus delivers today's message. John went to that mountain and he knelt down and temple steps, and he prayed to God to send him a sign. As he was praying, three Israeli fighter jets flew low over that mountain on their way to drop bombs in Lebanon. And he took that as his sign from God. And that launched his entire career. Father John Deere, you should uh, look him up if you, if you haven't. But I was deeply inspired by his mission when I was a young man. I believe because I have heard him preach that abolition is the path to liberation. But one of the things that I had to learn from John Deere is that it's insufficient to preach abolition in the service of liberation if you only care about the liberation of those who are under the boot heel, and not the liberation of those who are wearing the boots. One of the reasons the abolitionists in the antebellum south and in the north at the Quakers so desperately wanted to end the sin of chattel slavery in the United States is because they saw their brothers and sisters in Christ, those southern plantation owners, wasting their opportunity and paving the path to hellfire through their abhorrent behavior of their brothers and sisters. In other words, they didn't just want to free their Americans who were living underneath that brutal shadow. They wanted to free the people who were throwing away their eternal souls by enslaving their brothers and sisters. If we think that liberation is a coin with one side, we'll never reach the promised land. We don't simply set people free from oppression. We set people free from being oppressors. This is the hard truth the Beatitudes, and of Paul's teaching today. We have to find a way to have empathy for those who are committing crimes. It is very, very hard work. God's foolishness is the idea that those who are suffering, those who are low, those who are meek, those who are peacemakers, are the very ones who will set free the children of God. Because the world just doesn't seem to work that way. When I lived in Kalamazoo, I saw something in the news that deeply bothered me. Two police officers in that little town had gotten a hold of a man who was known to them as a, somebody who has been 
addicted to drugs for decades, somebody that they referred to as a frequent flyer. This man spent a lot of time in a jail cell. And he had been discharged from a hospital. They arrested him. He was having a heart attack on a sidewalk. These two police officers thought that this man was faking it in order to get out of jail. They put him in the back of a police car and he died. I saw all of this unfold on the local news in Kalamazoo and it made me angry. I'd only been a pastor there for a couple years, but I was angry because I had been uh, an emergency medical technician. And when you're an emergency medical technician, an EMT or a paramedic, there is never a situation where you would ever accuse somebody of faking an injury. It was madness. Whatever you believed didn't matter. You had a patient. You needed to transport them to definitive care. And I knew that these two police officers specifically were trained as EMTs. I was furious. The man died. The two police officers were, of course, investigated. The city was small. The, police, the chief of police found out that the local congregational pastor was angry, and he came to my office. We sat down and we spoke. He apologized on behalf of his officers. He explained that they would be getting better training. He promised me that this would never happen again. And all told, I was quite impressed. He cried there in my office on behalf of the family of the man who died. And I told him that I didn't need his tears, but that they did. He nodded, and that same day, he went and sat down with the family of the man who had died and apologized to them. And that began my journey into my work with the police in Kalamazoo, the Department of Public Safety. We had something very precious in that city. We had the very first Department of Public Safety in the country. In Kalamazoo, we didn't have police and fire and EMS. We had public safety. So all Kalamazoo police officers would do a rotation. Two weeks as police officers, two weeks as firefighters, and two weeks as emergency medical personnel. The hope was that this would help humanize the police officers. When you're a police officer and you're fighting a fire, it's very different than pursuing an assailant or a suspect on foot. The other side of that coin was that the hope was that the residents of Kalamazoo, when they would see a police officer, they would look at someone and see a firefighter. Public opinion about police officers and firefighters are very different from one another. Unfortunately, events like what had happened to this man gave, gave, a, gave, gave the, the, the lie to that hope. Unfortunately, it was so ingrained in people's minds that police officers were there to ruin their lives that it, the system started to fray and come apart. And so I was asked to serve as the vice chair of the Public Safety Oversight Commission, which I did in the hopes that we could find common ground. Because it wasn't that I felt so strongly that the system of policing needed reform. 
It wasn't even that I felt so strongly that the people of Kalamazoo needed to be protected from the police. It was that I was an abolitionist, and in my heart I knew that those police officers and the people that they arrested needed to be set free from a system of violence, that they were all human beings, and I refused to label them. Later, in 2020, a year of madness during the Black Lives Matters protests, I stood outside of my church I watched as these very same police officers who I'd worked with for almost half a decade beat and tear-gassed and maced students from K College and high school students from Loy Norix. I couldn't understand it. Auntie Sahida was living in our church at that time, and I told her, for God's sake, stay inside. This is going to be dangerous. I had to be there because I was afraid something would happen. And always out of the corner of my eye, I could see the door to the church cracking open. And Auntie Sahida gesturing for these high school students to come inside the church. And I went and I looked, and she had the showers running. And she was helping them wash the tear gas out of their eyes. I couldn't be angry with her. This elderly Muslim woman who'd lived through the brutal assault on Kuwait knew the fear of being gassed. She understood that the children who were out there protesting in the streets needed liberation and protection. I was angry at the police. Later afterwards, we sat down to try to analyze what had, went, what had gone so terribly wrong. <laughs> and that's when a domestic terror organization called the Proud Boys chose Kalamazoo as a location to have a riot. I knew all about this particular white nationalist group. Unfortunately, nobody else did. This was before this particular gang had been mentioned in a presidential uh, debate. This was before they had gotten on the national news. And I went to the ch chief of police and I said, you have to prevent this from happening. These young men are deeply broken inside. The other thing that I knew was that one of their initiation rights to get into this gang was that you had to pick a fight. You had to go into a city and pick a fight, specifically with a minority. The chief of police said, well, we should just ignore them. Let them have their little march, and then they'll go back to Ohio and Indiana which is really where they'd come from. None of them were from the area. And I said, you don't understand. They're coming here because they want to pick fights. And what they do is they go into cities with large homeless populations. They march to where the homeless are, and they attack them. He said, do you know where they're going? I said, yes, they've said they're going to Arcadia Park. I was asked by the members of the Jewish community to do whatever I could to prevent them from coming into the city. He said, we, we can't stop them, but perhaps what we can do is we can try to get all of the unhoused folks out of the city. Last week and the week before, I've talked about the crisis of homelessness in Kalamazoo. 
thousands of people. It's madness. But we spent an entire week before this event trying to get folks off the street, just for that one day. We did a good job. It was usually between one and 200 people living in Arcadia Park, living in tents or just sleeping under the band shell or in different areas. We managed to get all but about 20 of them housed. And the day of the event came, and I, I didn't know what to do. I ordered pizzas. I ordered like three dozen pizzas to have like a pizza party down the street. And I thought, let's just have a pizza party over here out of the way. That took care of the, about 15, but those remaining five were targeted by the Proud Boys. About 100 to 150 of them came marching down the street. They used their personal vehicles to shut off the streets, and they came and they picked a fight. Uh, it was very brutal. Uh, these homeless people ended up in the hospital. After that event, I had some strong words for the police, and it created another rupture, another fight, because we just couldn't seem to find a way to seek liberation. In the weeks that followed, I, my personal information, um, location of my home, ages of my children, my wife's name were shared on the internet, millions of people. My cell phone uh, would ring constantly, Three weeks following the event, I, in my mailbox, I found a photograph of our nanny and my child playing in our yard. Uh, the Anti-Defamation League came to our aid because they knew that the Proud Boys weren't simply targeting minorities, they were also targeting Jewish people. And they provided us with security cameras and they helped us out a lot. I would answer my phone and a disembodied voice from a private number on the other end would spit about 30 seconds of invective and call me the most disgusting names on the planet. I would always say, my name's Nathan. What's your name? They would say, I'm not telling you my name. I'd say, well, what's your first name? I'd say, Mike. Tim, Steve, Brian. These are the actual names of the young men that would call me. I'd say, what are you so mad about? Can we just talk? We're not that different. Typically, that's when they would hang up. <laughs> but sometimes we would talk. Overwhelmingly, their frustration and anger with me was that I was supposed to be on their side. They would say, you're a white Christian man. Why aren't you on our side? Why are you defending these? And then they would use every horrible name that they knew. They viewed the world as this binary between themselves and all of those who were different. And the only answer that I could ever give them is, we're all bound up together. You can't be free until they're free too. Now I know 
years later that these young men uh, were often the product of deeply broken and abusive households. They didn't need incarceration. Most of them needed a hug from a dad. Many of them needed an opportunity to do something meaningful with their lives. They found meaning in this horrible gang because it had its own purpose. Well, those days are behind me. But when I turn on the news to follow up on the cities and communities that I've invested so much in, I keep seeing this horrible binary, this awful division between two groups of people. And the hardest thing to do in my life is to do that which Father John Deere taught me, which is to try to preach and love to those who are making war. To believe that the liberation of enslaved people is bound up in the liberation of the people who are enslaving them. Tyree Nichols was 29 years old when he was killed by Memphis police officers this past week. He was tall. He was six foot two, but he weighed 145 pounds because he had a disease that made him thin. He was an aspiring, he wasn't an aspiring photographer, he was a wonderful photographer of Memphis. I went through his photography portfolio and I recognized all of those places that he'd pictured because I lived in Memphis. I recognized the streets and the horrible videos. I could recognize all of the places where they were pursuing him. And I recognized the terror in a man's voice who knows that if he does not get out of this situation, he will orphan a four-year-old boy, which is what happened. And then later, I see the images of five men, the men who killed him, who are now also about to set forth on a path of darkness and horror in the carceral system, five Memphis police officers, to Darius, Bean, Demetrius Haley, Emmett Martin, Desmond Mills, and Justin Smith. Ages 24, 28, 30, 30, and 32. All five of them younger than me. Somehow, in the brokenness of this sick world, they had shaken out onto one side. Tyree Nichols onto the other. Police in America killed 1,200 Americans last year. If we cannot find a way to view liberation as the common hope of all Americans, we will continue this pattern of violence into our children and our grandchildren's lives. The myth that is woven like a sick thread through the history of this country is that violence can be redemptive. There is no redemption in violence. Both Paul and Jesus tell us this today. 
Jesus' doxos, his wisdom, as Paul teaches us, he becomes the wisdom of God, is that we are all bound up together in the project of liberation. And when Jesus preaches his perhaps greatest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, inscribed in stone on the walls of churches across this country, he says that blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Somehow we can write a thing in stone on the walls of the church, and then when we leave, it evaporates like water on a hot sidewalk. And we walk into a world that says, blessed are the war makers. Blessed are the violent. Blessed are those who laugh at others' pain. Oh, we live in a society that seems to preach the opposite of what Jesus and Paul are trying to teach us. And when you go into the world and you say to people, I want to abolish this sick system that kills 1,200 Americans a year and then sends their murderers into a path of spiraling darkness, imperiling their immortal souls, you're told that you're crazy or that you're foolish. I get that one a lot. If I'm foolish for believing that we can have peace in this country, then it's God's own foolishness that I'm preaching. Because Paul says, not to put too fine a point on it, but Paul says that God chooses what is foolish to shame the wise. God chooses that which is weak to shame the strong. And God chooses that which is low and despised so that no one can boast in the presence of God. If God chooses what is foolish, then I will choose God's own foolishness as a path for my life, and the life that I want to give to my children. We've got to find a way out of this. The only way that I know and the way that I was shown by Father John Deere, that wild Jesuit priest, was to believe in abolition as the single functional tool that will lead to liberation. This means that we have to find the courage in ourselves to set down those brutal dichotomies that say, this path is foolishness and this is righteousness. I'm going to go with my gut, and my gut says these people deserve to be punished, and these people deserve to be free, and these people deserve to be celebrated, and these people deserve to be diminished and derided. I mourn this week not only for Tyree Nichols, but for those Memphis police officers who lost their very humanity in service to the worship of redemptive violence. And I mourn this week for a nation that seeks to somehow, in some sick worship of mammon and violence, dedicate itself to separating the world into those who are good and those who are bad. The distinction is meaningless because we're children of God. We all have to leave this church. We're safe right now, but we have to go out there into the world. And though we teach children to be empathetic, 
and to try to love those who struggle or those who are different with them. It is incumbent upon us to wear those shoes and walk that walk. And so all I want this week, when I turn on the TV, and I see people with whom I fiercely disagree, I just want God to give me a measure of empathy for them and remind me that liberation is for all or it is not liberation at all. I know that God is going to carry us through this season. Pray for the city of Memphis. They're good people. It's a fine city. It's filled with the most beautiful people, some of the most beautiful people I've ever met. Pray for the communities that are brutalized by the unjust systems of policing in this country. And pray for those young men and women caught up in policing who perhaps became police because they wanted to do something good who are then brutalized into a system that asks them to do that which is evil. Hmm. Pray for all of them and refuse, refuse to see anything other than a human being. Refuse to see anything other than a human being. And in so doing, we will rejoice because the reward in the kingdom of God will begin to blossom all around us. This is the way of Jesus Christ. And let all God's children say,